Good morning, philosophy people. How are you doing? It's Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. Of course, 27th of October, 2013. Hope you're doing magnificently. So just before we start, a massive thank you, as always, to everyone who supports the show. You know, it really, really means the world to me, at least, that people want to call in and chat about philosophy. I think that is just... Fantastic. I mean, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. You know, my whole life I was looking for people to chat about philosophy with, and now I have found my bloods and my crips, my crew, my posse, my roundabout station of entertaining questions. So I uh, just want to thank you. Uh, I sort of feel like we could add a two hour show every day, and there would still be lots and lots of people who want to talk about philosophy. So thank you for serving. My selfish needs. <laughs> I hope that they uh, are of use to you as well. So, Mike, who? Oh, who? Oh, who? Oh, my goodness, I've turned into an owl. Who do we have up this morning? All right, calling Brian via phone first. Via phone. Oh, dear. Is that because we can't, we can't reach him at the Pony Express or smoke <laughs> signals or tin cups? Hello, this is Brian. Brian, good morning. Good morning, Stefan. Good morning. Did you order an extra large with pepperoni? The driver can't find... No, just kidding. Go ahead. What's on your mind, friend? Uh, I wouldn't be surprised, but um, should I start out by rolling out the red carpet for you of, in, of uh, thanks and introductions? Whatever it and pleases you is fine with me. Well, I've been following your show now for five years, been very interested in it, and have been trying to take as much as I could from it, so putting what I can towards it and um, here today to um, call in again to um, try and get some advice. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, what's, uh, how can I help you? So I have a problem and I'd like to hear your opinion on it. And I'll tell you about some pro implications like this problem of mine as well. This problem has caused over my life over the last um, decade Breathe in and breathe out. So my biggest problem I feel like I've been finding is the fact that I have an inability to express myself in social um, situations to other people. And this has been taking place, I think, my whole life, and it's really been a largely part of my childhood. But um, because of my inability to express my needs in the moment to people, I've ended up hurting myself um, by I've ended up hurting myself by ruining a lot of my f future career prospects. I've dropped out of uh, post-secondary post school four times now. I've quit my job re as of recently. It's, I've had a lot of disastrous effects because I can't just express my own needs. And... Um, Now, not sure now, sorry, just let me, me understand. Is it is it that you you are aware of your own needs and you are aware of a desire to express them, but that you don't or can't express them, or are you not aware of your needs until later? I think I am aware of my needs, and the and I just have never been able to like come out and express them when I've been in times of trouble, and I've just let myself self self detonate. Now, what does self-detonating mean? Well, 
when I have a problem, instead of like trying to like emp- or communicate with other people, I will usually uh, isolate myself or lock myself like away in my thoughts or whatever, and then I'll start like beating myself up about the problems are my fault, and then I usually just can't handle like the stress and pressure and I usually just end up quitting very quickly after that. Right. Now, if you're comfortable, can you give me a, con- a concrete example? Or would, I mean, I'm happy to deal with the theoreticals, but concretes can help. Well, I will tell you one of the most recent examples. And in fact, I used to be in a laboratory technician program. And this was um, a few years after I've left my family, and I, and I got, and I went into this program mostly just for like, the peer pressure of wanting to appease my family by um, showing that I have some kind of like title or something like that, just to show them that oh I'm, oh I can do something really quite special. And I went into this program quite interested in in the actual subject matter, and for six months I was actually top three or. Four Four of my class, I went to a private college, which I built up and saved all the money up for. And when I finally got into the lab aspect of the program, um, one of the tech, one of the procedures that we would uh, learn how to do is to learn how to draw blood, or, or it's called a venipuncture, from other students, and um, we would learn how to examine the blood and test it. And I was, I was actually the first person in the class to do the procedure absolutely perfectly and without error. And that, that really made me feel great. But then the next week came and I made a mistake. And ever since I made a mistake, I just I could never succeed again. I just kept on shaking, thinking I'd, be a, thinking I'd keep messing up just like I did. And I just... And over the week, it just got worse and worse until I went to the teacher and just said I had to stop because I couldn't hold on to the needle any longer. I was just shaking, and I feel like I'd injure my partner. All right, so let's uh, let's dip back. And I'm, I'm incredibly sorry that you had the kind of history that produced these symptoms. I mean, that's a huge struggle. And I mean, you end up thinking about your life rather than living your life, right? Like, how can I find something where I fit? You end up self-managing rather than truly living and I'm, I'm incredible. Well, what I mean is so you end up trying to figure out how you can succeed in life with these, with these challenges, right? With these, with these personal habits, characteristics, feelings, impulses, and so on, right? You end up saying, oh, you know, like how could I possibly find an environment wherein I can succeed rather than just going out and doing what you want and taking your lumps, right? Yes, I, I would uh, you, I agree with that. You end up thinking about life and about your deficiencies as you see them rather than just going out and trusting that stuff will happen, some stuff will go well, some stuff will go badly, but but it'll be all right, right? Right. So what happened in your childhood around failure? Because look, I'm telling you, as you know, most of childhood is failure, right? I mean, it's not, it's not like the first time you decide that you want to roll over or crawl or walk that you get it right. There's lots of face planting. There's lots of spinning. There's lots of dizziness. 
you know, my daughter and I are currently working on reading and uh, it's a challenge. You know, how often does she get a word right when she puzzles it out? You know, one in 10, one in 20, right? That's a 10% or 5% success rate. And so a lot of child, most of childhood is, uh, is failure. And, and we know that because we keep moving the bar for children, which is, you know, that's fine, it's right or whatever, right? But I don't sort of encourage my daughter to learn how to walk when she can already start to do cartwheels, right? So, so most of childhood is failure. And a lot of dating life when you get older is, is failure. I mean, very few people will marry and, and stay forever with the first woman or man that they kiss. You normally will date a bunch of people. It doesn't work out. And then, you know, with any luck and with, with good self-work, you find the right person and you, you stay forever. How many people stay with their first job forever? I mean, it's almost unheard of, right? So a lot of, as I mentioned this before, like a lot of life is failure, but almost all of childhood is, is just failing. And, and that's partly on, because of the child, right? The child wants new challenges. Uh, so every time we get good at something, we move on to the next thing, right? Which is why, you know, very few people are still playing Pac-Man uh, as their only game who started, you know, in 1980 or whenever. Because we want new challenges. We want new opportunities. We want to stretch ourselves. And that means that we always have to be surfing the edge of failure. That's where our attention is as a species. It's why we don't live in the caves or, or the jungles like our ape friends, right? Because we, we always want something new and something challenging, which means that there always has to be the possibility of failure. And so uh, success and progress, I would say, is largely to do with our capacity to process failure, right? Like you don't look at a, a set of stairs and say, man, I hope I can get to the top, <laughs> right? I mean, I just, man, it's going to be tough. But, you know, if I really concentrate. Well, I hope I get right, to you, the top if I go for a leap. I'm sorry? I hope I get to the top if I go for a quick leap. Uh, it doesn't usually always work out. <laughs> right. Right. So, so, you know, like I'm currently pacing back and forth because I like to walk, I think, better. I'm not, I'm not worried about whether my feet are going <laughs> to trip up or anything like that. Uh, I'm 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 concentrating on hopefully providing some value to you. So, and the reason that I'm talking about this, of course, is that your major issue is with failure. But of course, the reality is that your major issue is not with failure, right? The, the, the basic logical thing we have to do when we have a personal problem is to ask: Is it universalized, right? So, if I get some sort of horrible burn on my arm, it's going to be seriously painful. Now, that's not just my issue. Like anyone who got a burn on the arm would find it very painful. Now, then I'd have to go to get skin grafts or whatever. That would also be really painful. Be all this sort of, so that would be a sort of universal experience. And the universal experience is that everybody fails. Everybody fails. I was just thinking about this the other day. And if you, you know, everybody releases an album and they all know it's not Dark Side of the Moon. They know it's not The Wall. They know it's not The White Album or Sgt. Pepper's. They know it's extremely unlikely, if not impossible, for it to be a classic album that will last forever in the minds and hearts of the culture. 
everybody who writes short stories know knows that they're probably not penning an Alice Munro classic or The Secret Life of Walter Mitty or you know whatever short stories have made it to the top of the canon. You know they're not O. Henry, not the bar, <laughs> not the candy bar, but the writer. But they release it anyway. They release it anyway. Like I'm slowly crawling my way up the lists of of sort of podcasts and and all that. But I mean, at the beginning, I was like nothing. Most of my videos get less than 30,000 views. But every now and then, I'll I'll pull one off that gets a lot. One of those you know, views is usually always mine, though. <laughs> well, good. Okay, so you're, you're helping me mask my failure. That's kind of interesting. That's very helpful, right? But I mean, that, that's just natural. And you, you just say, okay, well, I was hoping this video would do better, but the video didn't do better. And so uh, I'll just go make another one. But I know for sure, I know for sure that it's not going to be even 1% of a Lady Gaga's video views, right? I mean, that's just not, not the way it's going to be. So in terms of success, the majority of what we do is not, you know, the people who write songs, they know that they're not writing Bohemian Rhapsody or Stairway to Heaven or whatever is going to be you considered to be a sort of classic or Hotel California. It's like, they just know. This is just a song. Some people are going to like it. Most people are never going to hear of it. And uh, some people are going to buy it. So given that failure is part of life and, and our capacity for success, yeah, first of all, we can't rest our capacity for, for happiness on our capacity for success because success is a, a fleeting thing. And, you know, there is in, – in, in the world of women, there's like – it's known as the Oscar curse, right? A woman, woman wins an Oscar and she gets a divorce, usually within a year. And um, so even if you get the, the highest award in, in acting, I mean it comes usually at great, at great personal cost. I don't know the reasons for that. It just seems to be kind of a phenomenon. So – and the reason – sorry for this long speech, but the, the reason I'm saying all this is because it is in your childhood that your relationship with failure – is created. So when you failed, as we all did, and every human being does as a child, uh, almost perpetually, what happened when you failed as a child? Well, when I would fail as a... Well, let me go explain a little bit of my childhood for a moment. And I grew up in a family where my mother divorced my father. I was the middle child of uh, four other kids. So I had a large family, and I was in the middle, and I was and I was living with a stepfather. And whenever I'd end up failing by failing a test in school, or I wouldn't succeed in something, I feel that I would get this like disappointing, condescending like attitude from them that oh, you're just not applying yourself enough. If you actually worked harder, you'd actually do something. And I didn't really get a lot of support what? from them. They mostly wait, wait a second. Sorry to interrupt. Do you get how insane that is fundamentally? Yes. Do you know why I know that it's insane even if I knew nothing else about you? Go on. Well, is it more important to succeed at a test when you're a child or is it more important to succeed in keeping a family together for the sake of the children? It would be much more important to keep the family together. Right. And so... If they are saying to you that, my goodness, uh, you you have just failed 
because you just you didn't imply yourself enough. You just applied yourself more than you would uh, be able to succeed. But then my question would be, even as a child, well, then how come your marriage failed? If you know so much about what success is and, and how you're supposed to apply yourself to succeed, if you know so much about how things should work and how to make things happen and how to be successful in life, then what the fuck happened to your marriage? Now, I think after I started um, not doing too well around the fifth grade of my school year, that's from my wait, 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 wait. I feel like I just threw some words down a well without an echo. <laughs> do, do, you, do you see what I'm saying? Yes, I, I know like the burden is um, largely on like the environment and not so much as uh, me, I know, for that. Um, Sorry, I don't, I don't follow that. What would your parents say? I, I mean, I know, you know, I know you say you're not talking to them, but what would your parents say if you were to say, well, look, if you all know so much about success and how to succeed and it's just a matter of application, then how come the marriage failed? Pardon me? How come the what? The marriage failed. My mother uh, told me that she left my stepfather because my stepfather was um, abusive and he was hitting me. I, I have no memories of this. Um, my earliest memories stem from the third grade. Uh, All right, hang on, hang on. So, this was, this, so was, was your stepfather your mother's second marriage? Yes. And how many marriages and, has she had, at least as, at last count, that you know of? Uh, two marriages. Um, my father, and now she's married with the stepfather. Oh, she's still married to the stepfather? Yes, and I called in um, previously in the past where I explained um, another call and I, or another problem I had. All right, so, so your mother had um, one marriage that failed and one marriage that has remained. Is that right? Yes. All right. And which of the fathers was abusive? I thought you said it was a stepdad, but is that they were both not right? Well, my mother told me my original father was abusive, but I know for a fact that my stepfather was abusive for some of the assaults that he had done to me. And sorry, in what way was he abusive? My uh, stepfather um, strangled me at, when I about oh, five years ago because I disagreed with an argument because I disagreed with him and I would regularly be like hit or smacked by him if I caused problems. Oh, I'm so sorry, my God, that's just terrible. I mean, yeah. So, so obviously that's not good parenting, uh, even by shitty contemporary parenting standards, that's bad parenting. So then my question would be, of course, uh, you know, if these people know so much about success, then why are they not successful as parents? If these people know so much about success, why are they abusive in their relationships? If these people know so much about success, how come there's a failed marriage with four children? I'm not sure how to answer that one. Well, there's no way to answer it. Because what they're doing is they're using failure as an excuse for sadism, right? They don't care about your success or failure. In fact, they probably want you to fail so that they can discharge their venom and their evil and their bile upon you. Like my stepfather, when I, was, when I started entering the fifth grade, when I started not doing too well in my school, 
that's when he started pushing the burden of house chores on me. So I would do all the work at the house. We had, we had six people in our house. So I would mow the lawn, do all the dishes, do all the cleaning. And I, and I would ask him, why are you making me do all of the cleaning in the household? And what he told me was, you better get good at this now because this is what your future is going to be, just cleaning. Oh, so he thought you'd be like a, uh, he'd be like a, you'd be like a maid or, or something like that, right? Yeah. Right. Right. Well, you, you understand that, that this is, I mean, this is just massive sadism, right? It, it's, it's, it's more than verbal abuse like, oh, you're stupid. It, it's, it's defining an entire tortuous future for you that is, uh, you know, what Lauren Scheingold would call soul murder, right? Which is just a desire to, to collapse, eviscerate, and erase you as a human being uh, for the, the pleasures of, of sadism, right? Right. So you understand that everything that happened to you as a child is the complete opposite of what success would look like in terms of, of parenting. It is the complete opposite of any standard of success that you might have as an adult. Which I'm not to say like you, you, know, you, you understand that and just wave it away like it just vanishes. But yeah, I can't. These, these people have, have no credibility. Listen, listen. It's, it's just really, really important to understand this, right? These people have no credibility. To, to define what success means in your life right now. I know that they're in your head, of course, and they're in your neurological system and they're in, in your fight-or-flight mechanism. They're in your hippocampus and your amygdala and they get that they're in your head. But this, this has to be seriously and, and fundamentally challenged, right? Like if I, was, if I was 350 pounds and a chain smoker and I came up in my little portable wheelchair because I couldn't walk – and I said to a sports team, make me your coach. Do as I do, and you'll win everything. Do everything that I – adopt my lifestyle, and you'll win everything. <laughs> what would people say? Um, maybe you should change your uh, self first. Well, I, I, they think they'd say you're insane. Like I don't think they'd even make an argument like that. Because if I – if I genuinely thought that as a 350-pound chain smoker who couldn't even walk, that if people did what I did, they would win sporting events, like if they ate like pigs and smoked like chimneys, that they'd start winning sporting events, they would recognize that I was gen- – if I genuinely believed that, then I would be beyond the reach of any kind of reason, right? All right. Now, if I didn't genuinely believe that but was instead saying – something so insane, then I would be so bizarrely cruel and distorted that, again, you you would have no – there's no possibility of debating with somebody who genuinely believes insane things. And if your parents had this attitude towards you, in other words, if they're strangling you and, and hitting you and saying that you're you garbage only fit for cleaning houses, then that's so fundamentally evil that I hope at least that you understand that they should have no credibility whatsoever in your conscious mind as to how you should live.
But if you're still so afraid of success, I would argue it is because that they still have some credibility in your mind. You still believe that they have authority in your mind. You still believe that their judgments are worth a damn. That their evaluations of you... Go ahead. No, I agree with with the line of thought that you're saying right now because, like, a lot what I... I've been doing as a recent, I just, I always think about, oh, what would my parents think? And I still can't, I just can't get over like that hurdle. Like, I'm just like, oh, I'm, I'm just, uh, what if I don't, what if I do this? They'll, they'll say all the, they'll wonder all these bad things. I don't even talk to my family any longer. It's just the idea of like, what if they find out that I've dropped out of uh, school again? They, they would just just think that I'm a failure and I'll be, and then that hurts me because I just think about what they'll think. Right. Right. And look, that is perfectly understandable when you are a child. Because when you're in the child, when you're a child and you're in the grip of evil parents, you have to appease them, right? Nobody stands up to the sadistic prison guard who's got any sense at all, right? Because you've got no power in that situation. They can do whatever they want. And so... As a child, you have to internalize your parents' value systems. You have to. It's a survival mechanism because most times in human history and human development and human evolution, those who did not reflect back to the parents, the parents' belief systems would be killed or abandoned, which is really the same thing. You know, or the torture would increase. Like if you were skeptical of your parents' religious beliefs – in the 14th century and you out and out talked about, I don't believe in, in God, I mean, such unbelievable torments would descend upon you that children who did that just wouldn't last, right? Right. If you don't believe in the gods or the leaders of the tribe throughout most of human history, I mean, boy, you just wouldn't be long for this world. So the, the children who survived were the children who successfully internalized their parents' belief systems. Now, if your parents have good and healthy and nice belief systems, I think that's great. I think that's great. But if your parents have toxic, violent, sadistic, or destructive belief systems, then you'll internalize that anyway. In fact, you probably have a higher incentive to internalize that because if you... If you don't accept the punishment of a sadist, the punishment will escalate until you do, if he has power over you. Right? I mean, just think of torture, right? So if you need, if you believe you need information from someone and you believe that torture is the way to get it, it's not true. Torture is just a huge waste of time. It's just a sadistic playground. But, but they, if they sort of they slap you across the face and you don't tell them, what they want to hear, what happens? They, they slap you across the face again, and then they, they escalate, right? They'll drive a nail through your scrotum. They'll pull out your fingernails. They'll whatever, right? Right. And so if you have a sadist around you, then their punishments of you will escalate until you internalize their belief system. Their goal, sadism's goal, is to replicate itself in others. Like all thought patterns, that they... They're, they're like – they're called memes, right? They're, they're like DNA. They simply struggle to replicate themselves in others and they seek the most efficient means by which they can replicate themselves. 
And sadism attempts to replicate, replicate itself as a thought pattern like sociopathy and hopefully like philosophy. It attempts to replicate itself as a thought pattern in the minds of others. So basically your, your father had a, quote, illness, uh, which he could only manage either by confronting and eliminating within himself, which he didn't do. But the only other way that he can manage is he basically would vomit up his illness into you. And then if you got sicker, he felt healthier. Oh, Richard. Now, oh. if if you believe that that process is, has anything to do with a moral evaluation of you or a just evaluation of reality or a rational evaluation of the criteria of success and failure – then it will – it has successfully replicated itself in you. Evil replicates itself in you by calling itself good because we never challenge and oppose the good, right? Like if, if we have a wart or something that we want fixed, we don't go to the doctor and say, well, you can put that frozen thing on anywhere except where the wart is, right? Like, oh, no, that's, the wart is the thing I want removed. The wart is unsightly or whatever, so that's what I'm going to go de get dealt with, right? And so evil replicates itself in us through abuse and then calls itself the good because that is how it hides itself from the natural immune system of moral outrage. This applies in a wide variety of contexts. And so if you don't clearly identify the evil that was done to you, that was inflicted upon you as a helpless child, as evil, as out-and-out, stone-cold, vicious, ugly, destructive and abusive evil, for which you are 0% responsible and for which your parents were 100% responsible, if you don't clearly identify that, then your moral outrage will not work like the immune system does to rid yourself of the virus of evil. And this is why the greatest sadists inflict their evil under the umbrella of moral virtue. Because the virus that can successfully hide from the immune system is the virus that succeeds the most. And so it cloaks itself in virtue so that your moral outrage cannot see it. And this is why when I talk to people, I strive as mightily as I can to help them identify and name the evil that was done to them so that their moral outrage can find it and begin to fight those fuckers and get it out of the system. So that's why I'm saying, or really asking, and I think you've confirmed that you do think, what would your parents think? Oh, if they find out this thing, oh my goodness, right? Well, if you still think that there's some value, some positive value in what was done to you in these areas as a child, then you can't fight them. You can't get them out of your system. Any more than you say, I have a – any more than you'd go to a doctor and say, 
you know, I, 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 I can't straighten my arm out too well, so can you please remove my left, left testicle, right? You wouldn't say that. So that's why I'm no, I... talking about this. Right. Have you done therapy by chance? I have never been to um, therapy, but I feel like I really need to go now, and I really need to find a way to make the funds to go and afford it now. Because, you know, when people say to me, I've been listening to show staff for five years, I think that's wonderful. But how many times have I said to people, you need to see a therapist? People, they pick and choose quite a bit, right? Right. So that would be my uh, my strong suggestion, or at least start doing the self-work. You know, write out conversations that you would have, arguments that you would have with your parents. Pardon me? Write out conversations, arguments? Write out conversations and arguments. Yeah, write out conversations and arguments. Engage your alter egos. The Socratic dialogue starts with the self, not with the world. Everybody wants to jump into epistemology, politics, ethics. and all. The hell with that. The, the, the Socratic dialogue starts with the self. It starts with history. It starts with your parental alter egos within yourself. It starts with your – what I call the ecosystem, what Richard Schwartz calls the, the, the fa- family systems. Uh, engage your stepfather. You can do it now. I mean you're an adult. He's not there. But he's in your head. So you can engage him in your head without him being able to strangle you. Why? Because he's in your head and you run the arms, right? Not him. Um, I would so like confront to and point engage out, him. Yeah. I would like to point out that this was the topic of my uh, previous time. I'll really quickly uh, go on that. But last year in December, I called about a recurring dream I was having. And it was that it would, the dream was I would be with my family, my mother and my stepfather, not my real father, and, we, and my brothers and sisters, and we'd be in some great, fun, wonderful place, like an amusement park. We'd all be having fun. And in the moment I would speak to my parents, I would realize like, the, like how wrong they were and how disgusting they were, and I would argue with them, and then it would just turn into this, this disgusting, huge fight. And that would happen constantly, like almost every other week. I would have like this dream, where I just I couldn't I couldn't get to the point of where I would talk to them because the moment I would talk to them, we would just it would just break into like a big fight or argument. Right, and you're bringing this up because? Well, it's just because um, when you say practice, like. You can kind of like practice like speaking or working through the arguments or speaking with like your stepfather now. It's just that I've like I've subconsciously done that a lot when during when I was sleeping or d- dreaming. No, no, no. It's got to be a conscious process. It's happening in your dreams because it's not happening in your life, right? Right. So th- your dreams can't they can't make you better. Your dreams are like, here's the things which we're not talking about, which we're not doing in our life that's important. That's why they have to be coded. That's why they come across as analogous because there's resistance in your mind. So listen, I've got to get to the next caller. But first of all, I really, really want to say, I mean, what a horrendous experience as a child. I mean, to be told by the living God in your life that you're 
you know, basically destined only for cleaning people's houses and all that. I mean, that's just unbelievably horrendous and destructive and and cold-heartedly vicious. You know, there's in parenting, there's crimes of passion. You know, like some you know, just you had a bad day and you yell at your kids because you, you know, whatever, right? And that's bad. And, and obviously you need to apologize and not do that. But, but then there's sort of crimes of intent, you know, like cold, calculated dismantling and destruction of a child's soul. This is really the greatest evil that there is because it is out of that evil that all other evils spring. So I, I would really highly recommend a therapy for these issues. Um, and um, moral outrage is, is the cure for evil. And all that deadens moral outrage serves evil. And this is why this stuff which says, oh, well, your parents had difficult childhoods and, and therefore you need to empathize with your parents. And it's like, no, that – no, no, no. It is moral outrage that cures evil. We have a fight-and-flight mechanism for good and evil just as we do for tigers and lightning. And we need to engage all of the energies of our soul – to combat evil, which is the greatest infection in the world. And we don't do that through this pseudo-forgiveness and understanding. It. That is basically taking the sword and turning it into a piece of overcooked spaghetti. And that just allows evil to trample over the world. No, moral outrage, anger, horror, disgust. These are the anti-venoms to the poison of evil. Get angry. Push back. Be outraged. Don't for a moment say that we need to empathize with our abusers. I mean, in what other context other than childhood is that bullshit put forward? How often do we see feminists lecturing rape victims that they need to find a way to empathize with the bad childhood of their rapist? No. Put the fucker in jail. That's what they say. Patriarchy. In what other context do we ever say to the victims of evil that their primary job and healing mechanism is to empathize with the evildoers? In what section of the IRS code does it say, well, if the man doesn't pay his taxes, then you need to sort of understand his childhood and, and understand where he was coming from and really try and figure out who he is as a person. And, and don't judge him negatively and certainly don't report him. Don't send him to jail. That would be insane. Just really seek and struggle and just try to understand why he's not paying his taxes and engage him in a fruitful conversation but forgive him up front. There's nothing like that in the rulers. If this man doesn't show up for the draft, I mean, let there be no negative consequences for him not wanting to go and fight in some rice paddy in the ass end of nowhere. Uh, you seek to understand him. Maybe he's got a problem with authority. Maybe maybe he had a bad childhood. Maybe his parents had a bad childhood. And he just doesn't really understand his social obligations because he grew up in such a chaotic household. Seek to understand him. Uh, pay for him to go to therapy. Uh, don't, don't throw him in jail. And all that. I could go on and on. But you understand that right. it is only – it is only – with regards to parents, that the commandment to forgive and to understand and to avoid moral outrage, it is only with regards to parents that this commandment remains virtually absolute. 
And the reasons for that, I hope, have been clear in this conversation. So thank you for calling in. You can overcome it. You can get to success. But you must clearly identify and, and, and refuse to accept as legitimate the evil that was done unto you. And I think then you will recognize the voices as, you know, the voices of devils rather than uh, uh, angels with your interest at heart. So thank you for your call. I appreciate that. And who's up next, Mike? All right, Goodbye. Cornelius. You're up next, Cornelius. Go ahead. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? Hello. Uh, I'm doing pretty good, but I'm uh, well. This might be uh, pretty similar to the to the last call, except for nerve wracking and anxiety. <laughs> and what's your anxiety to do with? Uh, um, I don't know. Uh, talking on air like this, and uh, uh, you probably know what it is. Anyway, yes. Well, I think I think it's worth it. I think I think it's worth uh, facing because uh, of the quality of the show. I I, I really appreciate uh, your rigor. I think that's what makes it what it is. Uh, anyway, I'd like to address uh, like where we're picking up from because I called before. Uh, maybe f- I, I think four months ago. I uh, I slapped my I slapped my father in the face. Do you remember me? You sl- was it that you talked about it, or it happened four months? I ago? talked Did about, it, talk about yeah, it. Yeah, I, t- I talked about it like like two months ago. I think. Right. I just like to and, address. Uh, yeah. Go yes. ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Well, I I just like to say um, uh, what's been going on with this. Uh, there's something that has like come up in my mind. I think. Uh, I'm getting more pleasure out of um, being honest with myself about it uh, than with uh, trying to appear immaculate by making up excuses for it. Uh, I mean, I, I, I've been a, I've been thinking uh, my action was insignificant compared to what happened, like all around it, like what other people had done to me around that that time but i mean i think there's like a real pleasure in uh, in making absolutely no excuses and uh, like in um in admitting to myself like e- even the slightest mistakes because it's all about consistency so I just like to. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm going to have to ask you to focus on a question, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but uh, I just want to make sure we we actually get the time to deal with what's most pressing to you. Yeah. Well, I'm do- I'm doing my best, but anyway, my problem is with um, I think the inertia of history. Um, my family situation has been uh, well. Terrible and a defu has ensued, uh, which is pretty much, which which I uh, well it's done. I'm pretty much defu'd with all my family, so uh, there's no help from them. Uh, I've been seeing a therapist for quite a long time, uh, a psychiatrist, but they're I I just think they're useless. I I just don't think they're really able to help anyone. They're from the public sector, for one thing. Uh, it shows, it really shows. 
I just need like someone to tell me the unconscious things I can't see myself and there's really nobody to help me do that and there's no family like to comfort comfort me or anything. Uh, my problem is with dissociation. I have lots of problems with growth anxiety. Uh, maybe I can uh, elaborate a little bit. I'm not going to try. I'm, I'm really trying not to make this too complicated <laughs> for you. Uh, well, yeah, if you can give me a specific, um, like I said, a concrete problem, that's usually yeah helpful. Well, uh, it's like I'm not really doing what I should do, what I think I should do. Um, you know, there's the ma of depression. I think that's a nice metaphor. I'm not like looking at it in the distance. I'm in the ma of depression, barely like reaching out into life. Uh, it's not a distant reality. It's my reality. And life is like a distant thing that's hard to uh, grab onto. I don't get a lot of things done, you know. Uh, and why do you think uh, why do you think that is? Well, I've mentioned growth anxiety. I think that's uh, that no, no, be, no, no. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a label, right? That's a, then that's a fine label, but I don't know that it has any real emotional resonance. Mm-hmm. So, so th- is there a bunch of stuff you want to get done in in your life, but you keep procrastinating? Yeah, well, okay, so it. why mm-hmm. why so when you have that choice, right? Yeah. When you have that choice to do something or procrastinate, then what do you say to yourself about doing it versus like versus not doing it? Well, I try to see the long-term advantages but like you said, like there's no emotional resonance to it. I try to foresee the future. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what any of that means. <laughs> so let me yeah. sort of ask you more concretely. Right, so mm-hmm. give me something that, that you're procrastinating on, like a task. Uh, well, finding a job for one. For one. Okay, okay. And why do you want to find a job? Well, I've been, uh, I, I've left uh, home. I, I've been living in an apartment for, for like about a year now. And that's it. I have to pay the bills. I've been on welfare, actually. Um, yeah, yeah, so your life is kind this. of slipping away. You're not getting skills. Yeah. You're not getting experience. You're not getting context. Yeah, it doesn't can you, sound. Can like, you hang on? Yeah. Can you continue to live on the income that you have right now? Yeah, I can. Uh, okay. For so, for a while. Uh, I... Yeah. Now, if the welfare checks stopped tomorrow, what would you do? Uh, well, I think there would be like the urge to act on it and find think, a job. What do you mean? Do you think there'd be the urge to act on it? What would you do? Well, what, so you well, got a call from the, say, listen, your welfare checks are stopping tomorrow. You're not getting another penny for us and you can't appeal it. What would you do? Well, I'd find a job or something. Okay, so you would then say, shit, <laughs> I got to find a what? job, right? You'd yeah, say, shit, well, I got to find a job, right? 
Yeah, exactly. Well, well that's that, that's how I got through high school, uh, every part of it. That's how I got through college, and it didn't okay, work so out. Okay, so you understand? Enough. Sorry, you understand that you're allowing the government to dictate your day. The government. So if if the government changed its mind about your welfare, you would change your behavior, right? Um. Yeah, I guess that's right. Don't guess. You already told me that's true. <laughs> this is not a guessing game, right? You said that if they stopped giving you welfare, you'd go get a job, right? Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> well, I hope it's true because that's what you told me. So yeah, it's if... just the way you said it. Uh... <laughs> no, but Sorry. it's true. You are allowing yeah. government bureaucrats to dictate your decisions. Because as long mm-hmm. as they keep giving you money, you can postpone getting a job, right? So basically, you're this sort of half indifferent slave to statism. You're not making your own decisions. You're like, well, they're giving me money. You know the money is obtained unjustly. You know the money is blood money. You know the money is ripped off the back of the poor through inflation or stolen from the unborn through debt or printed or whatever, right? I mean, or or stolen from people through taxation. So you are the willing recipient of immoral money. And you are letting that dictate your day. And if they change their mind, then you might change your mind. You probably will, right? You're going to starve to death, right? And then what that means is that you don't have you know, what's called a locus of control. You don't have any, any hand on the rudder of your life. Oh, if the wind blows this way and I get welfare, then I'll, you know, hang around. And if the wind changes, then I'll go the other way, right? But you have all the willpower of a sailboat, right? I'm not criticizing, right? I'm not. I'm not. Really not. I'm just pointing out where you are in a hopefully fairly blunt and useful fashion. Do I remind you of a, of a zeitgeister in some way? I, you do not remind me of a zeitgeister, <laughs> and I don't no. want to get distracted by that. Because we are do, – do, I mean do you agree with the general assessment? Again, no criticism but just an evaluation of where you are. You are letting other people – people who I assume if you're a skeptic of the government, you would say are pretty immoral. You are letting immoral people decide for you how you're going to spend your day because if they give you money, you do one thing. If they don't, you don't, right? Yes. Well, it's, it's right. a loss of responsibility, isn't it? A it's not a loss. Of- no, 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 no. It's not a loss. Mm-hmm. It's not a loss. Look, if I lose my wallet, that's a loss. If I give my wallet away to someone, I can't say I lost it, right? Yeah. You didn't lose your responsibility. You gave away your responsibility and you continue to give it away every day. Again, not from a criticism standpoint at all. I'm not down on you. I'm not bagging on you for this. <clears throat> it's just a reality, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it starts to resonate because uh, – uh... I've had thoughts in the past of uh, I've I've had um, like images playing out in my head of like living in a totalitarian country like North Korea and letting other people decide when I can't get food anymore. Like, uh, well, this is what it is, right? You've had those thoughts because this is what this is what you is, right? Yeah, like thinking the, the hell with it. Uh, yeah. 
Well, and, and this tells me everything I need to know about your childhood, right? These habits don't just come out of nowhere, right? Mm, no, they don't. Okay. Yeah. So what was what was your willpower muscle like as a child? Because I think all children are born with a strong will. They have to be, you know, when they're, and they're born non-compliant, right? Because yes. <laughs> if they were compliant, they'd let their parents sleep through the night, wouldn't cry so much, right? So they're born, we are born with strong wills to get our needs met, even if it means discomforting others. That is babyhood, right? Yeah. Right. So that's that's human nature. Well, that's certainly how we're born. Yeah. And then what happens is, you know, somebody asked me the other day, "Well, what was Isabella like in the Terrible Twos?" <laughs> so it's akin to what? What's that, what twos. was your wife? What was your wife like in that terrible second year of marriage, when you stop indulging her and have to get her to start obeying you? You know, when you really have to break her will because she's disobedient to what you command, what was it like that second year of marriage when you had to break her? I mean, like, what the fuck are you freaks talking about? <laughs> I mean, you have to, there's no terrible twos. There were no terrible twos. And there won't be terrible teens. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. And people say, oh, you wait till, no. I know for a fact. I am never getting divorced. And I am never going to have massive conflicts with my daughter. Never. So you were born with a strong will, and your will got smashed up and broken through aggression. So when did that happen, and how did it happen? Um, well, I think the person who really broke my will, who's really responsible for it, I think is my sister, uh, I know the parents are parents are usually more important in our our development, but she uh, but uh, my I, I think my sister was like employed by my par parents to be the abusive element, the explicit abusive element. I think that's uh, she um, she really she uh, uh, for as long as as I can remember she. Uh, she just kept deriding me viciously. How so? She was two years older than me and uh, already in an early age. Uh, she really, she uh, she really had a had a blast out of pointing out how much better she is at everything uh, because she's two years older than me. So, you know, that's something she did early on. Uh, she, uh, so I, I was always like the second one in every category. She always had like all the friends, all the, the good grades. And, uh, yeah. But I know it's my parents who encouraged it, this right. family dynamic. Yeah, I mean, my daughter's going through, and I hope, I mean, probably will never end, but she's going through, like, competitive. She wants to be better than. 
Mm-hmm. Others. Read. She was in a running race with a a girl who was about a year and a bit younger. And she's like, I won. I said, well, yeah, you did. But like, she's like a year younger or a year more mm-hmm. than a year younger. You know, and that, that's a big difference at this age. So you can sort of say that you won and feel proud about that. But the reality is like you're you're measuring yourself against somebody who's not that great. Now, what you could do is you could help her to run faster. Because when you know something more than someone else, you can either say, well, I'm better because I know something more. And this older sibling thing, I mean, it's certainly a special a special thorn in the side of my brain, right? Just the accidents of birth order produce so many false vanities and insecurities, which are sort of two sides of the same coin, that it's just ridiculous, you know? So, so people genuine – like older brothers or older sisters genuinely feel – that they're superior because they were born first. It's a patriotism within the family. Like people feel I'm superior because I'm American because you just happen to be born in America, right? Islam is the best. Well, you just happen to be born to Islamic parents. It's, it's an accident. Ah, oh, People do this shit all the time. I'm better because I have great hair. Well, it's just an accident of genetics. I mean, what a ridiculous thing. <laughs> to be proud of, right? And then siblings feel like I am better because I'm bigger. I'm better because I'm faster. I'm better because I'm smarter. It's like, well, you just happen to be born earlier. What a pathetic thing to hang your self-esteem on. But of course, I mean, she's struggling to survive in a highly destructive environment. And if those tendencies showed up, which they wouldn't, if the parents weren't that way inclined or, or indifferent, then the parents would would oppose those and, and seek to understand what was happening and empathize with your experience as a younger sibling who was being put down and so on, right? But your parents obviously didn't do that or didn't do that enough to stop it, right? Yeah, indeed. I don't know if it's just a, a lack of pride I don't know if it's a lack of pride that allows people to feel better by accident, like to feel superior by accident of birth or whatever, right? I mean, I don't strut around a group of people in wheelchairs feeling like I'm King Kong of all that is great because I can walk and they can't, right? I mean, that's that's no good. I mean, like if somebody said that, that would just be ridiculous. And and we understand that that would be pretty cruel, right? Look at me, I can dance, you stuck in a wheelchair. Mm. But we do this with sort of siblings, do this a lot. More than 50% of sibling relationships are classified even under existing metrics as abusive. So, so I just wanted to point out that, you know, while your sister at some point would have had some moral responsibility, I mean, it doesn't go from zero to 100, you know, the moment you turn 18 or something or 16. I mean, you know, it, it scales up. Moral responsibility scales up. But uh, so I'm really sorry that you had that experience with a sibling. Mm. It is um, – I mean, it's terrible and it's tragic. I mean, the people who are more experienced than you – they should be working as hard as they can to bring you up to their level. 
right? I mean, I don't try and score points off you guys, like off my listeners, because I'm more experienced and, and more learned in certain areas, right? I, I don't say, well, you know, you haven't learned X, Y, or Z, or, oh, what do you mean? You don't know much about shopping now. How stupid can you be or whatever, right? But I try to use my uh, knowledge and my abilities to encourage the pursuit of knowledge and virtue in others, right? Not not to make myself feel more knowledgeable and virtuous by putting other people down. That would be – I'd be embarrassed to do that. Like if I would be embarrassed to say that I outran a 10-year-old. Well, I think and, my and sis- Take pride in that. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I think uh, the place my sister hailed and the place I hailed uh, kind of – uh, determined what our lives would be afterwards. Uh, you know, it's like uh, the the image of uh, the sister standing on top of her brother. Um, you know, my sister has always has always been so successful, uh, and I've I've always like failed at everything. I've always been very isolated. Uh, I think I, I've never like snapped out of that, and th- that's what I was looking for uh, ca- calling on this show because I, I'm looking for something to just snap out of this limbo I'm in, this historical yeah, limbo. Yeah, but for that you need for that you need to get angry, right? Right. So well, I have. How old was your sister? How old was your sister at the peak of her teasing or put downs of you? Well, around about uh, I, when we were both at in in high school, uh, she spoke behind my back with her friends like they. Okay, so like fifteen years yeah. old, right? Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you plan for the rest of your life to let a fifteen-year-old girl run your run? Of course not. Well, you say of course not, <laughs> but how do I know <laughs> well, that? I, I mean, yeah. yes, up till today, but tomorrow, no, right? Mm. At what point do you plan on not letting a 15-year-old girl run your life? As soon as possible. Because let me tell you, see, I know you're a young man, right? I can yeah, hear I'm 19. You. Okay, so you're 19. So I'm like 47 or something like that. So, you know, 28 years or whatever. Let me tell you something. Your sister will not succeed. Your sister will not succeed in life. But by the time you realize that your sister will not succeed in life, so much of your life will have gone by in inertia and resentment that now you will not have succeeded in life. One of the great things about being older is realizing the degree to which bad people fail in life. Now, you may say, well, bad people can become politicians and bad people can become soldiers and bad people, bad people. Yeah, absolutely. And in certain circles, they may appear to be great successes. But bad people only succeed because of the silence of good people. 
the capacity to harm a younger sibling, particularly through verbal abuse, is the final nail in the coffin of a dying heart. Now, there's lots of people who can succeed without empathy. You know, cheats, liars, politicians, unethical salespeople, unethical business people, sports coaches who abuse the victims of prior abuse and so on. By the way, moms and dads, don't let your children grow up to be football players. Uh, watch this uh, concussion documentary. It's very important. God's sake, keep them away from this Roman gladiator brain-mashing pseudo-sport. Anyway, so your sister has done significant wrong in your life. Great, great immorality, right? She has harmed grievously a child. Now, she was a child, but by 15, fuck, <laughs> come on, you know better. And before then, too. Now, if, if you think that someone can succeed after having egregiously harmed a child, then you have the wrong definition of success. Your sister may have may make a lot of money. She may get and stay married. She might have a flashy car. She might have all that sort of shit. And she can keep her evil at bay or the immorality that she's done at bay only by associating with equally immoral people, right? And so one of the things that we do when we speak out against, against evil, against immorality, is we shine a bright light on uh, immoral people. And we, of course, we raise the discomfort of immoral people. That's really the purpose of philosophy in many ways. Or it's at least something you measure the success of philosophy by, right? I mean, if, if you want to eradicate polio from the world, you obviously have to make the polio virus very uncomfortable, right? Of course. And it's going to try and mutate and adapt, but you want to keep boxing it in until it's eliminated, right? And so the only way that your sister can feel comfortable if, is if she's surrounded by people who never name the immorality of what she's done because they have their own immoralities under their belt and so on, right? Because see, if she was around me and she told me the ha-ha story of her childhood, do you know what I would say? Are you kidding me? Hmm. You, you did what to your brother? What? Are you kidding me? I How wretched. Cover it up. I'm sorry? She did have to cover it up. I wouldn't let that happen. Hmm. Because I don't, you know, call me crazy, call me a... A sourpuss with no rational sense of humor. I don't find the mental destruction of children funny. I don't find abuse funny. I just don't. And people who laugh about it, I find that disturbed and disturbing, which is why I'm constantly saying to people, don't laugh about the evils that befell you. Right? And your sister then must surround herself with people who are not going to tell her the truth, who are only going to support the coldness that she has and the effects on others, right? And good people will be repulsed by her if she doesn't acknowledge and apologize and change, right? So no matter what success your sister may have materially or whatever, I mean – it's still 
or she can become as queen of the undead. Still fucking smells. So don't let bad people dictate your life. You choose for yourself what you want to do. You run it through the virtue matrix and you just go and do it and you deal with the discomfort that comes up. Your sister's uh, personality is significantly based upon your failure. And if you succeed, that's your fuck you, right? Come on, don't tell me you don't want to fuck you to your sister, right? So dismantle her personality. Succeed. If your success causes her to fall apart, well, sorry, there's a price for doing wrong. I'm not even that sorry. As I have succeeded, it has seriously destabilized people from my youth. Good. That's one way I know that I'm really succeeding. So you're telling me I, I have to know my enemy better? I think you have to know that she's an enemy. Yeah. Until she Mm -hmm. apologizes, and I don't know if there's restitution that's possible. I don't know if restitution is possible. And where restitution is impossible, never, ever wait for apologies. And I don't wait for apologies for more than 24 hours. Because I'm old enough now to know that if you don't get an apology for someone within 24 hours, it's never coming. And if restitution is impossible or very hard then you will never get an apology. You know, waiting for apologies is, uh, it's like waiting in a desert for a bus to come. I mean, it's just a huge waste of time. You know, there's tons of people in my my life who've who've wronged me or done harm to me. You know, I'm not hard to find. (laughs) You know, I'm not hiding out in a bunker in the Arctic. I mean, I'm available to everyone anytime. Anybody can apologize anytime that they want. But I will wait for nothing because I know they're not coming. Because I know when people fail to apologize to you, like so you, you bring up something that someone did, right? They fail to apologize to you quickly. I know for a fact that all they're doing now is – and I, I know this because I've studied how the brain works, right? I just know that they have now justified to themselves not apologizing. And once someone has justified something to themselves, forget it. Forget it. They now have a magic spell to wave away all the discomfort that might prompt better action. So I would um, really uh, encourage you to stop waiting and to get your uh, get your life going. Don't let a 15-year-old run your life for even one more day. Go succeed. Have a giant and titanic fuck you. What, how was I raised? I was raised to be insignificant. I was raised to have no effect on those around me. And I was raised anti-thought. Right? Every time I would receive confusing or complicated or ridiculous instructions from those around me, I would attempt to get clarification and they'd say, oh, don't overthink it, just do it. And then maybe I'd try and do it, maybe I'd get it wrong, and I'd say, well, I thought that you said, and they'd say, well, don't think. And my success and my positive and benevolent effect on the world makes the people who said I was nothing and shouldn't think uncomfortable, screws them up. Good. 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 
there is a price to be paid for immorality. And if we good people don't charge bad people for what they do, there's no God who'll back us up, right? You understand there's no hell they're going to go to otherwise. It's up to us to enforce the discomfort of evil. There's nothing in physics, no deities, no ghosts, no goblins that will do it for us. It is up to us to enforce the discomfort of evil. And as long as we hide out and break ourselves and pretend that somehow the lies that evil people told us are true, then they get to sail on perfectly comfortable with what they've done. And I just couldn't spend another day serving the narcissistic needs of evil people. So I became good. I became powerful. I became thoughtful. I became a positive force for reason and virtue in the world. Makes people very uncomfortable. Good. Any other questions? No, I think I'm. Uh, I, I think I'm done. But uh, there's something I'd like to mention. Um, uh, wh- what this call has done to me is uh, it, it's really ma- making me look at myself in the mirror. Because when I think, it's not the same thing as when I'm talking with someone who's not brain dead like most people. And I'm, I'm engulfed in a sadness, a, a great sadness, but I think it's very healthy. It's a, very, it's a really weird feeling, but... Uh, no, I understand. I mean, you want to have meaningful conversations with people, but there are very few people who are willing to talk about anything meaningful, right? Well, to, good. To, to I mean, honest. I want you to look. I want you to end this call really missing having an important conversation, right? Exactly. So that you will exactly. go and have more That's important exactly. conversations, right? What? Sorry. So you will go and have more important conversations, and you will miss that in your life. Right. So anyway, <laughs> I hope that you do that, and you can bring all this. Yeah, bring all this up with your therapist. I think that's really, uh, really important, uh, and. Um, Thank you for so much for calling in. Um, very, very good call. I'm tearing up, <laughs> but I'm okay. I'm going to uh, donate uh, pr- pretty soon because I just found out I could add my bank account to PayPal, so that's handy. I really, really appreciate that. But I'll tell you what would make me happier: it's go go get a job, go get a job, and then donate to me if you like. At least six months afterwards, uh, I I would rather not uh, have money now from you because you need to save your money for going for job interviews and getting yourself all dolled up to look pretty. Uh, so <laughs> I would say uh, I appreciate that's a very, very kind offer, and I don't want to say, no, you can do whatever you want. I'm just telling you I would prefer, I would feel better uh, with a donation after you had a job and be working for some time. Otherwise, you're just sending me welfare money, right? I, I, I don't want that. I just teared up. <laughs> yeah? Okay, good, good, because I, I don't, yeah, not, not for me. Not for me. Take, take that money for you and use it to get out of your situation, all right? That was a perfect call. Oh, good. I'm very glad. I'm very glad. And uh, see if you can talk. There's people in the chat room. Maybe people would like to chat with you after this. Try and stay in the conversation. I think that would be great. All right? Thank you, Steph. You're very welcome. Great call. Good job. Thanks. Welcome. All right, Justin, you're up next today. Go ahead, Justin. 
Hey, Steph, can you hear me okay? I can. Okay, cool. Um, so I will start by, I guess, I've, by saying I have two questions, sort of. Well, not sort of, they are questions. <laughs> um, <laughs> the first one is... Um, I think I'm getting somewhere with this, but I, I'm kind of an outside perspective would be helpful. I'm, so I'm wondering, I'm, I'm dealing with this long-term relationship and um, we're working things out and it's coming to a point where I'm wondering um, if I'm perceiving it. Like, well, the question would be how, how does one perceive a relationship in the context of attachment based upon long-standing history and actual you know, real deep love, you know, that, that you want to take forward into something, you know, new and wonderful relative to what? No. <laughs> what? Hey, sorry. No, no, right. don't apologize. I might just be not understanding, but I have to say again. That might be what? a poorly worded question, but okay. uh, I'll give you more. I'll give you more detail. Um, the, I've been uh, with this girl for the past eight years and, um, we uh, we both sort of had a nihilistic worldview for a long time, and um, of course that affects our relationship. You know, communication really wasn't happening to uh, to a significant emotional degree that I felt, mm-hmm. and she agreed. And she um, she has a tendency to kind of let people I want to say let, but sort of let things happen rather than assert herself. So she recently moved out to uh, Montana to kind of start over, and we've been talking. Well, sorry, these last I, don't, few months. I don't know what that. I don't know what that means. Start over. Like, well, for her, like start over, like, um, quit the job where she was here and and start over by, by moving out to Montana. Like, some people feel like when they move to a different state, they it's like a fresh start for them. You know, different different <laughs> but surroundings what about you? or whatever. Did she uh, yeah, move exactly. away from you? Yeah. <laughs> Yes, she did. Yeah, and that's and that's what we're talking about now. And we're still um, we're at a point where <laughs> we both think very similarly. So I'm wondering if I'm we're making this more complex than necessary. Like we ought to do this or should should not ought to do that or something like that. And we're still I feel we're still very much in love with each other and the communication we've had over the last several months has gotten much better, especially on the emotional level. And um, when we think about, when I think about going out there or her coming back here, uh, there's like this trepidation almost. It almost. I don't want to say it's like outright fear, but there's definitely some trepidation. All right. I still don't know what we're talking about. And I'm sorry if I'm okay. missing something, but... Uh... Yeah. Go on. I guess um, for me, like, there's a part of me that wants to just go out there, you know, pick up my life, go out there, live with her, or have her come back here and live with me. We we never really like committed to the relationship. We were together for eight years. We never like moved in with each other. And uh-huh. I'm wondering if a lot of the effort we're putting in to, uh, um. To trying to work things out is based more on attachment and and less on like than love. Do you know? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. No. I okay. So so tell me the virtues of uh, the woman that uh, make her um, 
one of a kind, irreplaceable for you. Okay. Um, well, she uh, she is she's always been extremely kind to me and respectful and very um, I want to say protective, but defensive in, in, a, in a healthy way. She I know she always has my back, and we think so similarly that uh, I could always just turn to her for support or something like that, and, and vice versa. And um, I think she's funny. I really like her company. And um, I've, I've never – I've always been able to trust her explicitly with anything. And the one thing that we've both not been able to trust the other one on as well as we could in other areas is like the emotional stuff. We never really opened up through all those eight years emotionally you know, like we did these last several months. Mm-hmm. And so we're uh, – I miss her still a great deal. We talk a lot. We text a lot. And you know, when I think about uh, an existence without – regardless of what form it takes at this point. But when I think about her without – when I life without her around, I definitely will start to get teary-eyed. And you, know, you can feel the tears building up, and she feels the same way. But just right alongside no, that – no. No, sorry. sorry. She doesn't feel the same way if she's moving to another state, right? At least not uh, completely. Right, yeah. That's where I'm getting hung up on. Right. So why don't you move with her? Uh, I, I'm, I've been selling my stuff. I've been I've, in the past couple, past 30 days or so, I've been selling off a lot of my stuff in preparation so for that. Her. In preparation for that, yeah. I mean, she. I think she would rather come back here, though. So we're we're talking about those particular logistics while we're talking about. Sorry, I find this very confusing. What do you mean you think she would rather come back? Um, well, I think f- because a lot of her friends are here. Because when she left, she left me, the friends. Um, she left the good stuff behind, along with the bad stuff. The bad stuff being, you know, she hates the state, she hates the the job, etc. Okay. So, can so you get I, to your th- question? I think uh, – what's that? I just – I need to know what your question is because I don't have anything uh, – I don't have enough meat to put a hook in yet. Okay. Got it. Well, I think f- – I'm wondering if I'm purposely making this more difficult as, as a form of like self-sabotage. Like why don't I just – like my friend said to me, if you really wanted to move – you could do so within 60 days, 60 or 90 days, and that would be it. If she really wanted to move back, she could do so the same way. So why aren't you? And and that's what I'm having trouble understanding. Like, despite how much I miss her and how much I love her, why why am I getting like almost frozen when I actually go to commit to a, an action of moving out there or allowing her to move back here and live in and live with me? Why aren't you married? Why aren't we married? Yeah. I. That's just not the way the relationship went. We never even lived together that whole time. No, 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 no. Come on, come on, come on, come on. You've kind of just been listening to the show where I'm talking about willpower and say there's no such thing as the relationship, Sorry. right? Like that's just not You're the right. way the relationship went, right? These are choices right. that you make. Correct. Okay, so why aren't you married? I'm not saying you should we be married. Sh- I'm just – Curious, right. you've been yeah. together eight years. I mean, if you were married, this, these decisions would be easier, right? Because if you're married, right. yeah. then you make decisions jointly and you don't decide to move apart. Correct. You're right. Okay. 
the, the marriage thing, uh, we, we didn't marry because we didn't really feel it was necessary. Uh, we, we both sort of had like the similar view about the government and stuff. We just didn't really feel it was necessary to get in a contract in that way to express ourselves. Uh, but we never really moved in together. Do you understand why it's necessary now? Uh, as a form of solid commitment, I, I feel that what might would be a good thing. Well, because now if you're married and she wants to move to another state, then you either stay together here or wherever. You move to some other state or you move together, but you don't move apart, right? Right, right, yeah. So you're kind he, of in a bind because you you didn't get married, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and marriage, you understand, marriage has nothing to do with the state. Okay. Right? Marriage is simply a public declaration to each other in front of everyone that that's it for you. The rest of your life, you're aiming at this person. Okay. And the reason for that is so that if you ever say, I want to break up with this person, people will say, no, no, you made a vow. You got to stick it out as best you can. Well, now, it doesn't mean you have to, right? You know, if she gets a brain injury, becomes a homicidal maniac, then things change, right? But it is sure. It answers the question: What is my level of commitment to this relationship? Yeah, it certainly does. And and if you don't, and it's also it's an acid test, right? Which means that if you don't, it's it, the, the concept of marriage is also supposed to help you save time to not get stuck in limbo. Yeah, right. Like I, I proposed to a woman that it wasn't right, and then we broke up pretty quickly afterwards. Thank God, I proposed. Right. Right. Otherwise, I'd still be orbiting this dead sun, so to speak, right? So sure. it's just a way of saying, look, I mean, life is finite. And there's lots about life that's really inconvenient for other people, like having babies, like getting sick, like getting old, like losing a job, like running out of money, like being unable to sleep. There's lots about life that's really fucking inconvenient to other people. Mm-hmm. And the marriage commitment is, yeah, I'm there. There's a reason why it says in sickness, in health, in good times, and in bad. Right. Because if we don't have the level of commitment to be there with people, you know, like I got sick this summer. I want to go to chemo, radiation. How convenient is that for my wife? No, not convenient <laughs> at all. Right. Right? If if yeah. she, If we were just dating, what would have happened? Yeah, there, there's definitely that level of emotional commitment to us, but we, aside from our views of the of the state and just in general, I have to really sit down and talk further about why why we really didn't get married or even. You want to have uh, sorry to interrupt. Do you want to have kids? Yeah. No, neither of us wants kids. I'm just out of curiosity. Not that it's a good or bad decision. I'm just uh, why. I mean, I would ask you if you said you did want to have kids too. I might ask that same question, but I'm just curious. sure. Sure, yeah. Um, I never felt. I mean, I feel better about it now, but I never felt throughout my adult adult life. I'm 34 now that I was quite right in the head to have the responsibility of a child. And I'm I'm a bit I'm a little trepidatious about. I want to say bring a child into the world because at that point I would be. You know the shield and the guide to the child and everything, and, and you know a parent should be. Um, but we just don't. I mean, the idea of having a children is not appealing to to me personally, nor to her. Yeah, you know that's a synonym, right? Why don't you want to have a child? Because it's not appealing. That's just a synonym, right? Okay, got it. Why do you want to go north? Because it's the opposite of south. Well, that doesn't really actually. 
it's not a, it's not appealing because <laughs> right yeah 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 it just it was something that we never felt we wanted the responsibility of or were ready for at Again, the time that's not and really I, very descriptive descriptive right so let me let me ask you another question did you have an impulse to have children and then you found reasons as to why not or have you just never even had an impulse to have children i i never had an impulse for children to have a have a child Oh, so then it's not a matter of, you know, not quite right in the head and avoiding the responsibility and so on, right? That's just zero desire for children. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's that. It would be the real reason. Yeah, I just does not. The, the the desire is not there. It's nothing I have to wrestle with. It's just not an issue. And your own childhood and her childhoods, uh, what were they like? Um. Well, yeah, you. I talked to you about a little bit about mine last year, last December which I don't expect you to remember. Um, just as a brief summary of that, um, I, I think I was born, my mother was 19, father was 16, and the early childhood was chaotic. Right. Yeah, I mean, uh, no, no, no solid father figure whatsoever. <laughs> None at all. Well, 16, it, my God. I yeah, mean, she, he was she just, could have gone to jail, right? I mean, that's that's statutory oh, yeah, rape, yeah. isn't it? And, uh, I, I, it might have been. I'm not sure. At the well, time. I think I think and, 16 and 19 is a big enough gap that anyway. I just wanted to yeah, especially that out, at that age. I mean, that's huge at that age. I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah and when um, so, so of course they got married because my mother was born in a religious family, uh, yeah. and they got married because uh, you know of me. You know, because they want to do the sure. quote right thing. Yeah. So, um, but neither of them, and I've talked with both of them uh, quite extensively these past two years about about our, you know, history and whatnot. And and, and so this, he left uh, being a child. I think they left. He left. Um, I couldn't have been more than eighteen months old when they finally separated for good. And you know how some people say memory doesn't stick, you know, from when you were a baby. But I, I can still remember oh, yes. when he left. <laughs> that was a big deal. <laughs> yeah, I remember the emotional. I my as long ago as that was, you know, I'm 34 now, and I was only 18 months then. I think that's my guesstimation. I remember very fucking clearly that night. Yep. I bet. I absolutely. Yeah. Bet. It's terrifying. Yeah. And and your your, uh, your girlfriend's. Go ahead. She, hers was much better. Hers was much more stable. Her parents are uh, – I've they're good people. I like spending time with them. Um, they share all similar perspectives that I do and they've always as – a, as, a, as a parenting team, they've been there for their, uh, for their children. They both had stable jobs. They have a stable household and – but uh, – they have this strange way of co- sort of stoically expressing their um, affection for one another. I'm trying to find a better way to describe it to you with a descriptive analogy that would make more sense. But it's – they're affectionate, but it's not like the type of affection that I would want from somebody. And and my girlfriend, um, she is – she's more affectionate than they are. Um, but like for her – for example, her mother is kind of the silent 
passive one and she kind of takes after her mother a bit and um her father is also silent but um more in that manly stoic type way but uh, there has never been any um abuse as far as uh hitting or um or anything like that as far as she's aware and as far as i'm aware or any of her siblings are aware right um, so why do you think she became a nihilist? Uh, th- that was – we we both were kind of skirting around that for a while. Like for me, what happened was – No, no. I was – oh, sorry. For, for her, she um, – I don't know exactly when it started for her, but I know that it kind of picked up momentum when um, – a couple years into our relationship where we sort of kind of gotten into a sink, but where it, where it started for her, I'm not sure I'd have to ask her like where that sort of nihilistic uh, worldview came from. Do you think you might be missing something in terms of intimacy? If you don't know where your girlfriend's beliefs came from? Well, I think, I think it might've come from, um, no, no, no. I I understand that you think, but, but but you had eight years, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's one of the conversations I wanted to have with her uh, this week. Actually, was where where she got to, you know, that point. Yeah, I mean, I, had- I think that uh, that would be my, you know, my suggestion. And look, I, I just want to be be clear. I, I think that life is short, and yeah. I think that we want to make sure we're with the right people. And so, when I'm in a relationship, I give it everything I've got. I open right. my heart. I, I, you know, I express my feelings and my thoughts. I ask endless questions about the other person, uh, and I just keep going. You know, the yeah, all I've always given. You know, just just keep going. You you keep going until you break through. You break out. You know, it's what I always right. say to people. Problems with your yeah. parents. Sit down, talk with them. Keep talking with them until you get a connection, or you're just done. And so, uh, you know, sit down, figure out the etymology of of where she came from, who she is as a person. How did she like? How did you guys, if you have such different backgrounds end up nihilism is a very dangerous mental state yeah right i mean yeah it's a very and so you basically it's like i'm a doctor and you got two people in in my office and they both have broken arms and they say well we did the opposite thing to our arms and i say well, i don't think you can have done the opposite things to your arms because they're both broken right so yeah so nihilism is is a, a very pathological not not like mentally ill or anything but it's a very destructive and, and dangerous mindset it was and if you both ended up there yeah and if you both ended up there with your chaotic and, and destructive background and you say well hers was much nicer and so on well it could be that she just didn't have any connection with her parents and and virtue and integrity and and so many good things in life flow out of connection with parents right and so if I she was a dandelion case. in the wind of parental indifference, then uh, she would have no particular values because she herself was not valued. Yeah. Yeah. We, we definitely have – we've been having a lot of conversations about you know, what we value in each other and you know, just in, in general. And <laughs> oftentimes what I would ask her, like um, what, what are you feeling right now about what, what I just said or, or what, what happened, she – it's as if the emotional side and the intellectual side don't kind of talk to one another. So she, mm-hmm. she said to me one time out of exaggeration, she's like, it's, it's literally like you're talking to me in another language and I don't know how to respond when it comes to their right. emotional stuff. Right. 
And I said to her, oh, <laughs> that's a big deal, at least for me, because I'm, I'm, you know, emotional guy, you know, very open. And right. at least I am, am now. But and she's coming to that point because she's when I when I first started listening to FDR, it completely er- erased the nihilism over the course of of a year. And then that, oh, good. the following the following year, I got even better. And she was picking up on that, listening to the podcast herself. Um, but she's she still has a lot of work to do to get in touch, you know, with uh, on that. But to assert her emotional state in a way that you know is in line with whatever values she um, she feels is you know pertinent for her. Right. Well, then I would uh, strongly suggest having those conversations with her, trying to figure out where she came from, trying to get a map of how her brain developed and how her emotions developed and all that kind of stuff. That is really, really important. I mean, I think that's really the essence of intimacy. So I would focus on that and um, try and figure out why you haven't made a real commitment to each other and you're still kind of in limbo after eight years. Uh, So that would be my my thoughts. I think that would be useful stuff to do. Yeah, and do do you think it would have been – I hate to use the word better, but do do you think it would have made more sense or make more sense if we were to work on this person to person rather than from because she's like two hours, you know, through three thousand miles away in Montana now, so it kind of slows down the process, yet still gives her the time to think and percolate because she doesn't like process emotional stuff quite the the rapidity that I do. Those are her words. So uh, well, I mean, I would uh, no. I mean, if I were in your shoes, I mean, this is very important stuff. I would, I would go down to Montana and I would plan to stay for a week or two at least. That's what I'm doing. You know, December. Yeah, every every night, every night, just keep talking about it. I mean, that's you know, this is your life. I mean, if she's the one for you, then make it real. And if she's not the one for you, then um, make it unreal. You know, uh, but the, this limbo is uh, is uh, not uh, not particularly good. Yeah, no, it's it's not it's not the way you want to be, right? Yeah, because I guarantee you, part of what she did was move away from you. Yeah, I told I her that. To yeah, blunt, I said to her, right? Yeah, I mean, well, I look, I mean, if yeah. she didn't, if she was willing to move away from you, then you were part of what she was moving away from. So yes, exactly. uh, you need to figure that yeah. out, right? Because of my temper back in the, during our relationship, yeah, it was frightful for her. Oh, okay, okay, right, right. Yeah, but yeah, I would definitely. I, mean, I never got angry stuff. at her. That we—that was one thing why I've always felt safe around her. Like, our, and our perception of the relationship was very, very different. Like when we would go to a party, and a guy would would hit on her or, or do something like that. You know how guys are, right? And no, I would just no, think I it's don't. Honestly, la- no, honestly, sorry. Just to, to be clear, if yeah. you're in a stable, committed, and loving relationship, people don't hit on you. Okay. True. Because they okay. sense it, right? Yeah. But anyway, go I got ahead. It. Yeah, I got it. He did sense something. You're right. You're absolutely right. But um, I always felt a more, I always felt more stable and assertive than um, than she did in the relationship. She always felt as if she could be replaced at a whim at the next best thing that comes along or the next better thing. Sure. And that's what lack of commitment does, right? Like if, if I was yes. – when I was younger, if, yeah. if there was a woman I was interested in, if she was married, I'd never go anywhere near her. If she just had a boyfriend, I'd be like, eh, you know, I'll, I'll keep my, I'll keep my, <laughs> my float in the, in the, in the lake, right. right? I'll keep my lure in the lake. Um, you know, I wouldn't pursue her quite as assiduously as if she was single. But, you know, married, I'm just off limits, right? And um, like I remember some woman wanted to have um, – I, I picked her up at the gym. And we went for a coffee, and she wanted to have basically an affair, uh, and she was married. 
And I said, mm. well, that's that's no good. I mean, my word, how, how could that work? Because either I don't like you that much, in which case the affair isn't really going to be much fun, or I really like you a lot, or maybe fall in love with you, in which case you're married and I'm screwed, right? There's just no right. way that this can work out well for me. Um, so she put out signals. I thought she was completely single, single wasn't wearing a ring or anything. And then she just told me she was married. Is like, excuse me? And I said to her, I was like, what? You realize I picked you up and you're saying that you're married, right? Like, what's up with that? She's like, yeah, you know, sorry, I guess. But here's what's going on in my marriage and blah, blah, blah. I said, well, I wish you the best of luck with that. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm not just going to have sex. So, um, so yeah, I mean, yeah. If, if you're committed, then you just, you don't, I mean, people don't try and pick you up. So this, you know, how right. guys are, it doesn't put any responsibility on you uh, or your girlfriend. But anyway. Yeah, they were definitely picking up on on a lack of commitment from both of us. Sure. I think I think you're right. Yeah. Right. All right, man. Well, listen. Best of luck. Uh, drop me a line if you can. Let me know how it goes. Uh, but you know, okay. we must get to the truth about everything because uh, life is Absolutely. short and lies don't don't make us live longer. Just make us live worse. I hear that, brother. All right. Thanks, man. Yep. Bye bye. All right, Joseph. You're up next today. Go ahead, Joseph. Great. Hi. Uh, thanks. Um, hi, Steph. How are you doing today? I'm very well. How are you doing, Joseph? I'm doing fine. Uh, well, I actually have a, a couple questions, and um, it's related to um, my my seeming inability to um, not be vulnerable in, fu- in front of other people. Um, wait, wait. Sorry. Or, too many negatives there. Your seeming inability to not yeah. be vulnerable? I don't know. Just just run me through that and take a few of the negatives out. Make sure I understand it. All right. Well, because um, you got seeming inability, not vulnerable. <laughs> so, yeah, what does that mean? Yeah. Does that mean you can or cannot be vulnerable with people? Cannot be vulnerable. Yeah. Sorry about that. Okay. Um, no yeah. I just I find it tough to uh, open up, and uh, uh, and I also find it difficult, particularly to um explore any issues that might embarrass embarrass me or make me feel ashamed and in fact like if i either minimize things or uh, outright lie uh in some cases um and i think Can you give me an example uh give me an example of an outright lie i'll share one with you if you share one with me <laughs> okay sure um well uh, I'm just sort of going through a transitional period uh, for career-wise. I'm just working like part-time at a bank and um, doing some trading and enrolled in a securities course. But, you know, I tell some people oh, I'm, I'm taking university. I tell other people I'm just finishing this thing up or uh, I actually have a, a better job or something like that. Um, so, like... It's not being so you, honest. You, I mean, you exaggerate to some degree, right? Like, it's not like you're not doing education. You just you want to sound like you're doing more or better education than you are. Yeah, exactly. And okay. it's not, it's not to not just to like any like casual acquaintance either. It's uh, you know to some of my closer family and f- friends that I'm um, doing constructing these lies around. Right. Right. Okay. And what are the consequences you feel of not having these lies? Um, I don't know. I, I guess I would feel like a little bit diminished or feel a bit ashamed. And uh, 
and that's those are particular things that I've always had really uh, difficult time with. I right. Uh, yeah. And where did you get this habit from? Where did you, did you see it ever ever before, or did you come up with it on your own? Um. Well, if if I'm being honest, I pr- probably. that's funny so if you don't put that before what you're saying do i just assume that you're lying about everything else (laughs) i like that to be honest i was like people say that to be honest it's like wait 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 this is the first time you've said that and we've known each other for a year so what does that mean anyway i just i think it's a funny phrase but because i know you're being honest right and i appreciate that it's just that when you presage something by saying you know, it's like me doing a business deal with someone and said, okay, to not rip you off this time, I'm going to do this, right? It's like people are like, wait a minute. Yeah, people think that that's comforting, but it's actually quite disconcerting. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, it's funny. Um, but yeah, I'd probably say that um, my my father was uh, someone who did that a lot and probably to even greater extent. Um, he would often be bragging about uh, some position that he's held uh, at a company or uh, he'd be uh, talking about how he just spent a a bunch of money on uh, a renovation to the home when it was, in fact, my mother who did that. uh, You You mean your mother who spent the money? Yeah, right. What does that mean? So, so like, my mom would spend money on an addition and then he'd be bragging to the neighbor next door that, oh, I put this in, blah, 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 you know. Wait, wait, sorry. Did he say that – I don't understand. Do your mother, are your mother and father's finances separate? Uh, no, they're, they're not. Well, well, now they are. They're, they're divorced currently, but when they were together no, – before. Like, uh, I, I'm sorry. To, yeah. I just wanted – this seems like an important detail. Yeah. So what does it mean when you say your mom would spend the money? I mean if it was your mom and dad's money, what does it matter who spent it? Well, it, it – it wouldn't matter, but if he he made it sound like he was the one who spent it himself, um, essentially. Um, it's like, I'm sorry, I just I'm I'm really trying to understand that. So, if he said we spent money, okay, who was the primary breadwinner? Um, they they were rel- relatively equal uh, in terms of money, but my mom put more money towards. Uh, the house, and uh, he spent more money on the day-to-day bills. Okay, so, I mean, because I'm just like trying to, so I'm just imagining, so a neighbor of mine comes over, they're putting in a pool or something, right? Mm-hmm. And I know that they, together as a couple, can afford a pool, right? Yeah. Or maybe they're going into debt, I don't know, but they, they feel that they can afford a pool. And then the guy comes over and says, I'm paying for this pool. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Something like that? As opposed to we're paying for this pool. Right. That to me would be like – I would be like, well, what do you mean you're paying for it? Do you have money separate from your wife? Like I don't understand. <laughs> I mean you're you're both working, so why – aren't you both paying for it? It's like, well, she – I pay more of the bills and therefore she has more money. So it's like – but she only has more money because you're paying more of the bills. She's still contributing, right? I I, I would genuinely not understand what – and, and I would actually – that would look weird to me and somebody – like if he thought that would elevate his status in my mind, quite the opposite would be true. Yeah. Uh, Does that, I mean I'm sorry to, to pause on this. It just seems like it's kind of important because you didn't notice it, that that's a weird thing to say when you're married. It's, I'm paying for this. It's like well, what does that mean? I mean the, the money's pooled. What, 
What does that mean? <laughs> no, you're right. That that is actually quite strange when I think about it. But you know, herein we probably see the seeds of your parents' disintegration as a couple, right? Yeah, um, and that was certainly probably one of the less uh, volatile aspects of the relationship. And also, your father is like doesn't know how sane people hear him. Yeah, like this. I mean, it's it's sad enough when someone is trying to impress others. It's even sadder when the opposite happens as a result. Definitely. So. All right. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you got that model for you. I think that's that's pretty tragic. Um, that I mean that that is pretty tragic. And well, I mean I can tell you mine, but who cares, right? So um, I think we've all done it. Uh, so um, let's uh, let, let's keep moving on. So you have that same impulse. Now, are the people that you say these these things to? Are they important to you? Yes. Okay, so give me an example of when you talked about this, you embellished the education thing. Who were you talking to? Um, well, uh, like I was talking to my mother and I said that I enrolled for uh, a course. Holy shit. Yeah. That's... You mean you did this with your mom? Yeah, it's pretty bad. So she divorced the guy who had this habit before, but you feel this is going to be somehow conducive to your long-term relationship? <laughs> yeah, I know. Right? Does your mother call you on it? Does she know it's not true? No, she hasn't. Does Does she know it's not true? Uh, no. At what point will she know it's not true? Because that's always the problem with lying. If you lie to people in passing, then what's the point? If you lie to mm-hmm. people who are sticking around, then you're screwed, right? Because they're going to find out. Um, Probably... Probably no more than a couple months, I would imagine. Right, right, right. Okay, so so you understand that it's pretty disastrous, right? Yeah, to say the least. You know, like it's 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 like you can be whoever you want to someone on on a plane, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I can say I'm a neurosurgeon if I want. I, I you know, but if I'm only sitting next to them for an hour or two, then who cares? Never going to see them again. What, what the hell does it buy me? Right? Never see them again. They're never going to find out if it's true or false, right? But if right. I say to the woman I, I'm interested in marrying, I'm a neurosurgeon, I'm completely fucked, right? Who's <laughs> going to find out about it? So under yeah. no circumstances is there really a benefit. Because either, who cares? In which case you're compromising your integrity for the sake of strangers you'll never meet again. What's the point of that? Right, that's like, or on the other hand, you are um, selling your integrity to look better in a relationship wherein, for sure, you're going to end up looking infinitely worse, right? Yeah. Now, the pickup artist community and the Tom Likas listeners will probably have some <laughs> different opinions about the value of lying, right? Because I think Likas is like, yeah, lie, say what you want. Women lie all the time. They can push up bras and makeup and, you know, like, oh, whatever you need to justify. But um, but it doesn't work in a sort of rational context, right? No, of course not. And, and yet even 
having known this, I still had the impulse to carry it out. No, and it means that 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 you're. It means I don't know if you've read Real Time Relationships. It's free and all that at freedomainradio.com forward slash free. But it means that you are probably addicted to managing the anxiety of lying. Because it's you know it causes problems, makes you feel anxious, right? Yeah. Because you know it's coming out, right? And and when a lie comes out in a relationship, some very difficult things happen, right? So if a lie, let's say, so your mom finds out that you've lied, and a couple of things are going to happen. So the worst thing that can happen is she doesn't call you on it. That's by far the worst thing that can happen. Why do you think? Um. Because no no progress happens. The underlying uh, reasons for me having that impulse for lying will just continue on. Well, that's your sort of selfish response. But what does it mean? What else does it mean from your mom's perspective? Mm, that she didn't, didn't really care about. Uh, she doesn't, yeah, she doesn't care I, if you I, tell I, the truth yeah. or not. She's fine yeah. with you lying to her. And what that means is that she either doesn't know that lying is bad in a relationship, in which case she can't be trusted, or it means that she knows that lying is bad in a relationship, but she doesn't want to save you from that habit, which means she can't be trusted, right? Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Feeling a little more uncomfortable now? <laughs> yeah, I can say that again. No, good, because we want, to, we want to make lying more uncomfortable than not lying, right? That's the point, right? That's why you show smokers graphic depictions of people dying of lung cancer, so you make smoking more uncomfortable than not smoking, right? Because not smoking, if you're a smoker, is uncomfortable, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that's why kids study for tests, because it's uncomfortable to fail them, blah, blah, blah. So that's why parents have to sign report cards and shit like that. I mean, this is how. I'm not saying it's always the best way, but I think in this case, it's something worth worth pondering. So so if she if she doesn't say anything about it then that's really 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 bad. Right? Cuz cuz now she's lying to you. Cuz she's lying by omission, which she knows something that's very important to you and she's not talking to you about it. Hmm. And she would only not talk about it because she knows that as a parent she's contributed to de- to the development of the habit, right? Parents can never fundamentally criticize their children. Right? As I said before, you're a painter. And you make a painting and you can't say the painting sucks independent of your painting of it, right? Yeah. I mean the guy stands back from finishing a sculpture. He says, what a goddamn ugly sculpture. I cannot believe somebody would make something that ugly. Get that thing out of my house. That would be insane, right? But this is what parents do. It doesn't stop them from doing it all the time, (laughs) though. No, I understand that. But it it reveals them as deranged, right? Hmm. I mean you can't – you can't – I mean – you cannot criticize your parent, your, your children if you're a parent because you're the parent and you are responsible for a significant portion of who they are, either through omission or commission, right? Yeah. And so, so if she says nothing, that's, that's pretty catastrophic. Um, if she's, now, if she says, you lied to me and she gets angry – then she's a painter railing against the ugliness of the painting, right? Because parents who get angry yeah. at the bad habits of their children, it's deranged, right? I mean, I know we don't see that yet for most of us in, in society, but that's just because 
it seems like 95% of moral reasoning is designed to excuse parents and deliver children to the state, but um, which is really two sides of the same coin. But if she rails against you like, I can't believe you lied to me and that's so terrible and so on, then that's insane, right? Now, yeah, if I she think says... That's the most sorry, go ahead. Was, the most I'm sorry, I think thing. that's the most likely thing to happen, yeah. Right. At which point you can say, well, mom, you were my moral instructor for 20 years. I'm not saying I have no responsibility. I'm an adult now. But for you to be upset at what you created is to say that you had no responsibility in the creation of who I am. Now, if you had no responsibility in the creation of who I am, then why am I here? Why am I sitting at your table? Because you had no effect on me despite the fact I was exposed to you in my most formative years for 20 years – if you had no effect on me, then we have no – why am I here? If you had an effect on me, then it makes sense as to why I'm here, but then you lose the right to criticize me, right? Right. I mean you can criticize me, but it's only after we've spent a month or two talking about your parenting, right? Hmm. Now, she may then also say you lied and she may then blame your father, Right. Well, your father was a liar and blah, 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 right? In which case, you can then say, well, you chose him, you dated him, you married him, you got engaged, then you married him, you kept him in your life for many years, you exposed me to him, so you still have responsibility in the matter, right? You know, people often do this. They get involved in someone and then they just get upset with that person like they just never chose them, right? Yeah. Like they were inflicted on you, on them or something, you know. Um, the other thing too is now what, what we hope, of course, is that she says, you know, you told me a falsehood. I'm sorry that happened. Let's talk about why you felt that was important. Hmm. I'm not going to criticize you because if I've been in control of your piano playing for 20 years and you made a mistake with your piano playing, I as a teacher must figure out what happened, that this – Either I didn't teach it right or I didn't know that you didn't understand it, right? It's the teacher's job to make sure that someone learns something, right? Yeah, of course. And so if there's something you didn't learn about ethics and your parents are your moral instructors, then it's, it, they have to look within themselves to say, well, why? And it wouldn't be hard to find. It's like because I continually exposed you to a male role model who lied. Hmm. Not that hard to figure out, right? At which point she would say, I hope, I'm sorry that I did not intervene when your father was lying to you or lying, or you saw your father lying to other people. I'm sorry that I didn't intervene and set that right sooner. It probably would have been a whole lot better for our marriage, might have saved it, and it certainly would have been a whole lot better for you being exposed to a role model as a young boy, right? Yeah. How old were you when you realized your father told these lies? Um, not very old, like six or seven because uh when we were younger he would always make these promises uh well i'm going to take you out here i'm going to buy you this and then he never followed through on them right so sorry that's that's such a shitty thing to do to a kid i mean it's i mean the kid has no power right it wasn't like you could drive yourself to the zoo or the ice cream store or whatever right and you make these promises and for a kid that's physics you know that's like this is reality this is the only thing the only way that it can work yeah. And then if you if you can't make the promise and then you just welch out completely even on talking about why or what happened and so on, I'm just – that's so unbelievably shitty and I'm, I'm really, really sorry. 
because it's uh, it's so manipulative, right? And it's such a buying a moment's pleasure at the cost of a long-term relationship, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm going to buy you ice cream. Yay! Daddy, that's great. I'm so happy. Dum, dum, da, dum, dum, da, dum. Hey, where's my ice cream? What? I never said that. Oh, man. <laughs> you know, plus one happiness, minus infinity, right? Yeah. Sorry about that. And you know why you're lying to your mother, right? Um, um I'm, I'm not sure, actually. <laughs> Well, because you, you want to know what's going to happen when you lie to your mother and you're conscious of lying to your mother, right? Because that's why we're talking now, is I'm, I'm laying out to you the logical consequences of this lie. And you want to know if somebody loves you enough to stop you from lying. Hmm. In a non-aggressive, but like a non-judgmental, non-aggressive, I haven't said anything bad about you lying, right? Yeah, that's true. Because I have great sympathy for the environment that produced these habits, right? So you want right. to know if somebody cares about you enough to help you with this problem. I mean, this you're young enough that it's like a cry for help, right? Somebody save me, somebody stop me. I want to see if somebody cares enough. Yeah, you could. I'm probably right about that. I think that um, it's also one of the barriers I've put up for myself in not getting involved in any relationships. I, I well, don't feel I mean, that I'm ready. You a, look, if you, if you have a habit of misrepresenting yourself, then intimacy becomes your enemy, right? Yeah. Of course, right? Because if you say things about yourself that aren't true, then nobody can get close to you. Because they'll find out that, right? You understand, right? Exactly. And that's the discomfort and the cost of this, right? You, you can't have love if you misrepresent. That's the price. You can't have vulnerability. You can't have intimacy. You can't have knowledge of the other person and they can't have knowledge of you. So definitely it is a um, an alienation of virtue position, right? And it is a way of making sure that no good person can get close to you. I mean, unless they're really good and, and they're interested in you, uh, then they can, you know, help, I guess, do sort of the sort of thing that I'm doing here and sort of talk to you about it in a way that hopefully is productive without being shaming, right? Hmm. But those people are pretty rare, right? <laughs> yeah. What, um, what do you think will happen in the long run to your life, in your life, if you don't uh, find a way to overcome the bad habit? Um, I think that probably my personal and professional life will just implode, you know. Uh, I'll either end up being some sort of <laughs> con artist or I'll just, uh, you know, keep everyone at a distance uh, to the point where I don't have any real relationships. Right. And what are you studying to be again? Um, starting to be a, a financial trader. Right. Do you see the problem? <laughs> you should buy these stocks. They're great. <laughs> 
yeah, that doesn't exactly work. Well, unfortunately, it works incredibly well, right? I mean, we have yeah. a system because whatever is based on violence will profit liars, right? Because, and, and the reason for that is that a system that's based on violence, first thing you have to do is cover up the violence, right? And liars are really good at that. So every yeah. system that's based on violence requires liars and, and rewards liars. You know, politicians, stockbrokers, at least in the current system uh, and so on, right? Yeah. So unfortunately, you are heading into some very dark and dangerous territory, right? Which is that you are heading into an environment where the capacity to dissemble is going to be richly rewarded. So you're heading into a reinforcement of your most dangerous habits, right? Yeah. Actually, I had an internship relatively recently and uh, – uh, and, and I can see that, that that was going on all around me where people were just sort of misrepresenting and, you know, they didn't have a problem. It was like, well, it's a buyer beware pretty much. That was the attitude. Right. And listen, I mean, I'm not trying to say you, you can't be an honest stockbroker. I, I mean, I, I'm sure – actually, I've had one or two on the show. So, uh, but, but it is not the norm, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, like uh, you had so, Peter Ship on the show. He's um, pretty big admirer of him. He's uh, yeah, I would consider I mean, him to be honest. Yeah, yeah. D- Doug Casey, Woody O'Brien, Jeff Berwick. All of these people have market information, and market interests. Mark Faber. I mean, uh, you know, I, I think they're all honest, good people. But I would not say that is the norm at all in the industry. Yeah, and they're not they're not stockbrokers who work for people. Right, <laughs> work for companies or whatever, right? So, I'm going to point that mm-hmm. out. So, I would, um, I can tell you what I'd do if I were in your shoes. I mean, you can do obviously, as I don't need to tell you, you can do whatever you want. But I sit down with my mom and say, "Mom, I've got to, I've got to have it. I think it comes out of the family, but I'm a man now. I'm an adult, and I take responsibility for my life. I think you and Dad taught me some bad habits. I think Dad was kind of a liar." And, and I don't mean like that's all he ever did, right? But you only have to rape once to be a rapist, right? <laughs> and um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, Dad, Dad had a, a habit of lying. And um, I saw this very early on, and you let this continue. You exposed me to this role model, and that's bad. Now, I want to take responsibility for it and find a way around it. But here's an example of a lie I told you, and I'm not comfortable with that. I'd like to change that because I don't want to have I, – I saw – what my dad ended up with, which was a divorce, right? That's not what I want mm-hmm. in my life. You know, all habits that lead you to the chasm of divorce are like a gun to your head. Because if you get divorced and if it's a contentious divorce, right, 70% of the divorces are initiated by women for no particular reason other than dissatisfaction is the number one reason. And they then, if they turn on you, right, I mean, if they really don't like you, I mean, they will take your balls and wear them around their neck like a pair of bobo ball castanets for the rest of your life because the family court will just shred you into atoms. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so either, you know, you stay single and and literally like take your condom and flush it, right? (laughs) And make sure you don't get sperm jacked or you, you, you get married and you've dealt with all the habits that will lead to divorce and you damn well make sure you get married to the right woman, right? I mean, I'm a big fan of marriage if you have the right person. 
if you don't have the right person, uh, just you might as well just saw your nuts off and, and mailed them to Gloria Steinem right now. Yeah. And you know where this is going to lead, right? Because if you, if you end up getting married to a woman and you're still lying this way, then you're either going to get married to a woman who has no problem with you lying, in which case you're doomed, right? Or she has mm-hmm. a problem with you lying and doesn't like it but isn't saying anything, in which case you're doomed because the resentments will build up and blow up. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there is no third. I guess only those two, right? <laughs> so, uh, and, and, and it will generally repel most most good people. Uh, and there may be a few who will really sit down and talk to you about it. But of course, if, if good people spend their whole lives helping other people with self-knowledge, they mean they'll never get anything done. So you have to let a lot of people go by, right? Very true. So it's your job now, right? I mean, you're the adult. Yeah. You have to take responsibility. Yeah, I'm like, I'm incredibly sorry that this was your template. I mean, it, it just, it's wretched. It's absolutely terrible. But in order to blame your parents, which I think is important, you, you have to change, right? Because if you say, well, this is the, my template, and therefore I can't do anything about it, then you can't get upset with your parents, which doesn't arouse the moral, the moral rage, which I think drives the stuff from your soul. So taking responsibility gives you the wonderful capacity to blame others for not taking responsibility. That's one of the delicious side dishes of responsibility is you get to blame people. In other words, to hold other people responsible. Right? So mm-hmm. I have become an infinitely better parent than the way I was parented. What I get out of that is the wonderful capacity to say I was parented really badly and it didn't have to be that way. Mm. Because it wasn't that, that wasn't that way for me. I changed. It's a wonderful thing. wonderful thing about growth is that you then get to condemn people who don't grow. And that's important. I don't sort of sit up every day and say, ah, I'm better than blah, blah, blah. right? <laughs> but it is, um, it is really important. You, you take responsibility, you get to turn the whip on those who didn't. And that's, that's important. Hmm. People think that makes you an angry person. No, no, no. What makes an angry person is displacement, right? It's when you have somebody who's done you great wrong but you won't admit it. You still serve their needs by forgiving them or pretending it didn't happen or excusing them or whatever. But the anger still exists and therefore it gets turned on the innocent. That's somebody who remains perpetually angry. You know, the itch that you can't scratch just remains an itch, right? If you scratch yeah. in the wrong place, the itch just gets worse, right? You ever try scratching around an itch? I mean, it just drives you crazy, right? And so if you can't connect your anger to its proper target, it's just like a fiery hose whipping around the house, right? Just spray and fire on everyone. Uh, the, the really angry people are the people who have genuine cause for uh, rage and who can never connect it to the right people. They end up blaming like it's the Jews or you know it's the hmm. proletariat or it's whatever, right? I mean, it's it's the bourgeoisie, it's uh, it's the blacks, it's the women. It's like wherever you can connect your anger to its proper target, it doesn't go away. It simply diffuses and continues to escalate because it's not connecting to where it needs to connect. So it just continues to up in amperage until it blows your heart out. Yeah, well, and so far, it's mostly been directed internally. Sure. I mean, that's, that's how you're, you're raised. When you're raised by problematic people, then they want you to blame yourself. And then if you stop blaming yourself, then they want you to forgive them, Right. But that's not true. I mean, the, the, the way to peace is to connect your anger to its proper target. And this is not my advice. This is a very old, old advice. 
but it really is just around the truth. Is that if you are harm, if you are harmed by specific people, then it results in anger. Uh, anger is very healthy, um, and so if the anger was generated by specific people, Uncle Bob, if Uncle Bob did stuff that made you that hurt you, then you're angry at Uncle Bob. That's just a simple truth. And since philosophy is after the truth, then yes, your anger was generated by Uncle Bob. And in that case, you need to get angry at Uncle Bob because getting angry at anybody else is unjust. It's rewarding, rewarding Uncle Bob and punishing the innocent, which is unjust, right? Yeah. Right? It's like, you know, some guy stole my wallet, so I'm going to go beat up some random guy. It's like, well, now suddenly you're the asshole. You're the aggressor, right? Yeah. And so you connect with, you know, it's what Aristotle said. It's getting angry is easy. Getting angry at the right person in the right way for the right reasons, that's not easy. And I actually think it is pretty easy. It's just that we're, we're told not to get angry, right? Obviously, right? Uh, especially at our parents or especially at people who harmed us as children. But no, the, the way to peace is to, to discharge your just anger at the correct targets. And then it will trouble you very little. I mean, I'm not an angry person. I've got a lot to be angry about, but I've, I've had my anger uh, out at the right people, and uh, it, uh, it then is done. You know, once, once you get the tiger out of your house, you stop fighting the tiger in your house, right? But if, if, you, if you have a tiger in your house and you, you attack the curtains, well, you never stop fighting the tiger because he's not going away, right? You just attack, get angry at the proper target, and you will be released from your anger because it has achieved its purpose, what it's there for, right? You scratch the itch, and the itch goes away, at least for a while. So anyway, that's what I would uh, uh, recommend to sit down, talk with your mom and say, look, this is where I'm at. I don't want to be this way, but uh, you guys had a lot – uh, you were the primary cause as to why I'm this way. Hmm. Say, well, I didn't know that. She might say, well, I didn't know your dad was such a liar. It's like, well, it's your job as a mother who is exposing your children to people to find out them. And if you had a, so bad a marriage that you didn't even know that dad was a liar, then that's even worse. Because now I have a model of one parent who's a liar and the other parent who's so oblivious and alienated from her husband that she doesn't even know he's a liar. And I don't believe you anyway. <laughs> right? So don't lie yeah. to me now, right? Now, people will always claim ignorance, right, when confronted. Well, I didn't know. I don't recall. I don't remember. I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> and it, first of all, it's not true, of course, right? People who say, I don't remember the moment they're confronted, uh, it's a lie because they should be exploring it, right? It doesn't jump to my mind, but give me some more things that might help jog my memory, right? When did this happen? Where were we? What was going on? Try and jog my mind. Right? That's, that's what people who aren't guilty do when they can't remember something that's important to someone else is they will do whatever they can to try and remember. Yeah, that makes sense. But if they say, well, I just don't remember and then that's it, that's just a defense. Yeah. And, of course, uh, then, then what you have to do, uh, what you can do, of course, is you can say, well, when I was a kid, was that an excuse for me? And if it wasn't an nope. excuse for you, then it's not an excuse for the parents. And if someone says, well, I don't remember your father lying throughout your entire childhood. I mean, that's such an obvious lie. I mean, how, how, I mean unless they're truly like mentally deranged, there's just no possibility that they didn't know that. You know, that he never, ever lied around your mother and, and she saw no effects of his lying habits in any way, shape, or form, this is simply not possible. 
Right. No, so I, it's, like I, what people, it's like what people say about child molestation, not to put your father in that category, but well, I didn't know it was happening. That is such a lie. That is such a lie. It's a completely understandable lie, of course, right? I mean, in the same way that you know, someone doesn't want to be caught as a pickpocket, although this is infinitely worse. But it's such a transparent lie because child molestation has such catastrophic effects on the personality that the moment it starts, if somebody doesn't know, they're denying the reality, right? Because the personality changes when somebody gets molested. And if you don't even know enough about your kids to know when their personality changes, then that's just a lie. That's just willful mm-hmm. ignorance, right? Yeah. So uh, I would not accept that I didn't know, I don't remember, I don't recall. Uh, I also wouldn't accept the it's worse for me. It was worse for me. I had such a tough time with it. Don't make it about her. Because she was there by choice and you weren't, right? Yeah, I, I don't think right, she if you're, was if you're, if, you're a prisoner, if you're a prisoner in some camp and the guard starts crying because it was so hard for him, well, assume, I mean, he could have left at any time. You were there by force. So, you mm-hmm. know, you don't get to focus on his suffering. He's got to focus on yours, right? Yeah. Um, so I would really focus on that and hopefully you could have some kind of uh, breakthrough and get some kind of clearer communication. And with that kind of – see, when you, if you have that kind of breakthrough – you will not be tempted by lying again, right? Because once you get that real connection and you get how sweet and wonderful and beautiful it is to connect to people at that level, you will no longer be tempted by lying because it will be – it would be like – it's like trying to lie – trying to gain happiness by, by lying. It's like trying to sunbathe and get a tan from the stars at night. You know, Once you actually are in the Florida sunshine for 20 minutes, you're like, oh, that's what tanning is. I'm not going back to lying out in the tarmac at night, right? Hmm. So you, once you really connect, it won't be. It won't. It, I mean, it just won't be tempting, right? If you want people to stop eating something bad, hand them something good that tastes better, right? Yeah. I hope Sorry, so. I've been doing a lot of talking, but but uh, that's it. That's sort of for my speechifying. If you wanted to sort of uh, finish up, let me know what you think. Uh, uh, I really appreciate the advice. I think uh, it's worth exploring. And it's funny because uh, this is not even originally like the topic I thought I was going to be going into. I was probably going to make it more like abstract and vague, but uh, this is mm-hmm. this is uh, really where I need to go. I tried to listen between the words, and the first thing you told me was discombobulating, and so that, and you didn't know it was. So that's what I figured the topic was going to be. So. Hopefully it was helpful. Yeah, thank you. You are very, very welcome. All right. Mike, do we have uh, anyone else? That's it, Steph. All right, well, thank you, everybody. Um, Now, um, Mike, when am I not doing shows again? All right, let me pull that up real quick. Um, Uh, November the uh, 3rd? November the 6th? Yeah, so Wednesday, Wednesday 30th I am, right? Wednesday 30th? November yep. 3rd, I'm not. Mm-hmm. November 6th, I'm not. Uh, November 10th, I am again, right? Yep. Okay. So, yeah, sorry. I've got a couple other projects on the burner, which i got to get finished. So I'm taking a week off from the Sunday shows. I'm very sorry, and I will miss you guys terribly, but uh, I think it's important. So, But I, I will be back. So just to mention that and uh, to apologize for that. And fdrurl.com forward slash donate. Please, please, please help out the show or I'll have to do the whole show in a singing voice. And uh, fdrurl.com forward slash Amazon. If you've got purchases to make, um, you know, it's win-win. They get your purchase. You get your purchase and we get a little bit of money. Um, 
and fdrurl.com forward slash iTunes. If you could upvote us and uh, leave a review, that would be some breadcrumbs for other people to follow to get to the show. Uh, just get this show in front of many people as you can. Some will say yes, some will say no, and some will not care. But for all those who say yes, you will change their lives. You know, spend spend 20 minutes a week, seriously. Spend 20 minutes a week. Share share your favorite shows on social media. Share your favorite shows on message boards or Reddit or wherever. Uh, just share. Uh, philosophy is really important to share with everyone, and it's so easy to do now. You don't, I'm not saying you have to go and get a PhD in philosophy, just 20 minutes a week. 20 minutes a week, you know, while you're watching TV, whatever, just go and share your favorite free domain radio shows with other people. What a great thing to do. You know, you share something about spanking, or you share any show which gets people into the show. And they then, you know, they go to therapy, they, they, they live more honestly, they stop hitting their kids. If you could spend 20 minutes a week on your couch while watching TV, helping people not hit their children, I can't understand why you wouldn't. So hopefully you will do that. Just just keep sharing, keep sharing. And um, that's how we make the world a better place. Thanks, everyone. Thanks again to Mike. Have yourself a wonderful week. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>